Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is called The Plan of Salvation is Not a Standardized Test. Thanks for coming back to listen to another episode. Before I jump into the subject, I've got a couple of quick things that I want to say. Due to some scheduling things on my end, I'm going to have to push back the recording of the uh, the next section of No Man no- the No Man Knows My History review. So I'll get to that as soon as possible. The other item of, of note is this week on May 4th, yes, Star Wars Day, May the 4th be with you. I am going to be a guest on the podcast, 21st Century Saints, where they're going to interview me over there, and uh, we're going to have a a great chat. So that will be live streamed on the 21st Century Saints channel at, I think it's 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. It's 1 p.m. for me on the West Coast. I think it's 9 p.m. for them over there in the UK. If you're free, go check it out. Give it a listen and uh, and participate in the chat there. So that should be a fun time. For those that won't be able to be there for the live stream, I will post the audio on my podcast as soon as um, as soon as I'm able. So hopefully next week, maybe the following week. And then after that, I'll, I should have the episode of the next part of the Exmo Book Club ready to release. So got a couple of good things down the line. And then, <laughs> yeah, there's always more. Stick around to the end of the episode. I'm going to chat briefly about some of my first impressions of watching the episodes that are available of Under the Banner of Heaven. Today is April 29th. And right now there's uh, two episodes out. I have a lot to say on the subject of the plan of salvation, a lot that I want to cover. And today I'm not going to be able to cover everything that I want. So I think I'm going to do one more episode on this. And that episode is going to specifically address the issues of free will, whether we have it or not, and how that relates to the plan of salvation. Where today we're going to assume that we do have free will and we're going to assume we're going to examine the plan of salvation through that lens thanks so much to the listeners that have left comments reviews and interacted with me on the various platforms where we post this stuff and thanks especially to those listeners that have donated to the mormon discussion podcasts brand and also uh, to my podcast to ramiumptum ruminations if that's something that you're financially able to do and want to do, please go to remiumptumruminations.org and click on the donate button. And even a dollar, recurring dollar a month donation would be awesome. Just whatever you can, whatever you can afford. That'd be great. That helps us keep the lights on. And if you're not financially able, don't worry about it. So last week we discussed the subject of the plan of salvation 
as it applies to Laban and the, the uncomfortable implication of God ending someone's life. So if God commands the wicked to die, he's in effect ending their opportunity to be tested and prove themselves worthy to return. It's one of the major shelf items for a lot of people when they read the Old Testament, where there are countless genocides done in the name of God. And it's kind of an uncomfortable idea. But not only is it uncomfortable for the fact that that it's like sanctioned murder of a whole race of people by God, but it also, as we discussed last week, it also means that God is judging and condemning people before they've had the opportunity to live out their full lives and had the opportunity to repent and change. It demonstrates if this is how God acts, it is directly in contrast with the idea of a loving God, because a loving God would forgive and would offer the opportunity to change and make amends. I mentioned the subject of this episode briefly at the end of the episode last week, and so I want to go over it in more detail. To start out, let's go back to our time in school, whether grade school or college, university, whatever you call it, wherever you live. When we learn a subject and are tested, Let's imagine that we are in a math class. We've learned the arithmetic and we're going to be tested. As we're thinking about this test, I'm going I'm to explain how it's, how it's practiced in effect. We're at a math test in a testing center in the college campus or you know, wherever it is that you're taking this test that you want to situate yourself in your mind. Imagine you're sitting there with all these other people that are taking the exact, well, <laughs> air quotes, the exact same test. While you're there sitting there taking your test, you notice that the teacher is going around and dismissing some students early, saying they have completed their allotted time to take the test. And it seems to be at random. Some people walk in and they're ushered out immediately. Others walk in and they're ushered out after 10 minutes and others after an hour or two hours. Everyone that, that goes into this test is given a different amount of time to complete the test. And then as you go and you start answering the questions, you've been there for 15, 20 minutes, you're looking over and you, <laughs> you're not supposed to cheat, but you do look at your neighbor's test and you see some of the questions that they're answering and you realize that what you thought you were taking was a math test and you look over and the person next to you is taking a biology test, but you're both in the same math course, or at least you thought it was a math course. And now concerned, you look over to the person on your right and you see that they're taking an English test. And apparently nobody in the room is taking the same test. And then to complicate things further, a student walks in late and as he sits down to his chair, the teacher hands him a calculator, but you didn't get a calculator when you sat down to take the test. And this student sits down there with the calculator, answers all the questions, and finishes early. But the teacher says says that he needs to sit for the allotted time. And so he sits there, doing nothing. <laughs> I, I made the situation as crazy sounding as I could. But every single one of these scenarios that I presented here is an aspect 
of how the plan of salvation operates. Again, I made this, I made the comment last week, I don't believe in this, and I am an agnostic atheist myself, but I think it's fun to analyze and understand things, break them down, because I came from the belief system and I understand how it works, but as I think back on some of the thoughts that I had and the way that I processed information, I see so many holes with the way I understood the world. And so that's kind of what I'm doing with this. So the plan of salvation is sometimes called our earthly probation or the, our test, this proving ground for us to return to Heavenly Father. But this is not a standardized test. Now, I don't know if that term is something that they say outside of the U.S., but in the United States, we have, um, we have certain tests that students are supposed to take. Sometimes they're state tests for us you know, to measure the learning and development of kids in their elementary schools. It's, uh, they have standardized tests for entry. You take a certain test, and if depending on the score that you get, you can get into more prestigious schools or less prestigious schools. And these tests are standardized. Everyone is given the exact same allotted time to take the test. They're given the exact same opportunity to study and prepare for them. It is a test that when everyone sits down to take it, it is fair for the most part for everyone, or at least that's, that's the goal. That's what they're going for when they do this sort of a test. When we examine the plan of salvation, not just as a theory as it's presented in this council in heaven that, that the scriptures discuss, but when we examine it as it's practiced and as it is happening for those that believe in it, it is clear that this test is unfair. Let me explain. And I'll go through the different examples that I gave for this, this testing metaphor that I started out with. One of the easy ones to, to begin with is that not everyone that is born on earth has the same allotted time to live here and to experience life through tragedies, diseases, sickness, all sorts of things. Many people's lives are cut short for one reason or another. Now, the plan of salvation as presented does take account this to an extent with the blanket statement that anyone who passes away before the age of accountability gets a free ride into heaven. But that doesn't take into account the fact that someone who passes away when they're 30 doesn't get the same opportunity to take the test to learn and grow as someone who passes away when they're in their 80s or 90s the time that they're given to learn and grow and prepare to return to Heavenly Father is different for everyone. So that was the first thing that, that I talked about, different allotted times to take the test. The next one, <laughs> and, and uh, hopefully I'm not jumping too far out there with this, but the next one I said was that sitting there, you notice that the person, that one student was taking a biology test, you were there to take math, and then another student was there taking an English test. In practice, the way this life happens, everybody has different circumstances and different problems that they face in their life. We could say, for example, everyone is commanded to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, some people have great neighbors. Other people have really bad neighbors. 
So the person with a great neighbor, this this test question to love your neighbor is pretty easy. Your neighbors are cool. But what if your neighbor's not a good person? The question or this part of the test of loving your neighbor is not easy for the person who doesn't have good neighbors. This part of the test is unfair for these two individuals that we're talking about. Now, this was a very simple example. I get that. But you can extrapolate it to much more serious things. One person might go through a very hard tragedy in their childhood and have to deal with the repercussions of that for the rest of their life. And it influences them in dramatic ways. But another person doesn't have that happen to them. And they are unaffected by by the trauma that some people experience. You could say that my first example was was not really a fair assessment, but when we look at the nitty-gritty, the way this life happens, as I said, that first example was kind of silly, but we could go through the countless ways tragedy happens to someone in their life, and there is no way to reconcile that it's fair and an even test for everyone. When some people go through some really hard things, but not everybody has that sort of tragedy in their life. We could complicate this even further. There are many people that are born with privilege based on their skin, their gender, their sexual orientation. They are born and this world is easier for them because of the privilege that they have. I recognize that this world was built for people like me. It was built for white cis men. So I have a lot of privilege. And you can't for a moment say that the plan of salvation is fair when people are being born into a situation where the world is against them. Because that's not fair. You could even say physical limitations. Some people are born with physical abnormality. When we extrapolate and discuss the wide variety of scenarios and challenges that each individual faces, it becomes clear that that it is not a fair test. The way the plan of salvation, if if we're say, you know, as I said, if we're going to just say, yes, the church is true. Yes, the plan of salvation is, is God's plan. If we're going to make those those concessions and discuss this like that, I do not think an argument can be made that the plan of salvation is fair for everyone. In practice, it is, it is unfair. The last one I mentioned in, in the metaphor of the test, of, of the standardized test that I was talking about, was someone who walks in, is taking the same math test, the teacher hands them a calculator to do all of, to answer all of the questions. It makes it so much easier for them. You could relate that to privilege. You could relate that to many things. You could relate it to being born into the church. You could relate it to being born in a time where people have access to the scriptures. If we're going to look at this plan of salvation and and if you want to look at it in a way where you believe it and it is something that is that is the way that this world is supposed to operate, I think it's impossible to look at it and think of it as a fair test for everyone. I've mentioned on a couple of occasions that the commandments are different for different people based on the time period that you lived in. The commandments are different for different people based on whether or or not God asked you to kill someone or 
If you believe that Joseph Smith was commanded by an angel with a fiery sword to marry young girls, then you have to make the concession that that the rules are different for different people. I'm not here to say that that did or didn't happen. I'm simply stating that if you believe this, then you believe that this is not a standardized test. If you say that God can change the rules as he sees fit, then the questions on this test are different for everyone because one person who does these things is not going to enter heaven. But then when God commands it and says that it's okay, another person who does the exact same thing will make it into heaven because God said so. And that's precisely the point that I'm trying to make with this is the plan of salvation is not fair. Last week near the end of the episode, I asked the audience to think of ways that they might come up with to make the plan of salvation more fair, more loving, and even for everyone. I think a quick and easy one would be to make all the questions the same for everyone, make the difficulty of the questions the same for everyone, make the time allotted to take the test would be the same for everyone. The ability to understand the questions and have access to a calculator to be there for everyone. Yeah, I'm describing a utopia, something that that doesn't really match the existence that we're living in. But that's precisely the point. This world is messy and hard. It's vile and horrible to so many people and beautiful in the diversity and the differences and the unique experiences that we all have and bring to the table. That's what makes this world a beautiful place. My whole, my analysis of this whole thing isn't to say that everyone should conform and have the exact same life and look and act the exact same way. That's not what I'm saying. Because it's in this diversity that we have the real beauty of our planet. There's a, uh, a meme going around that I saw on, on TikTok where this gal asked if those that are atheist or agnostic, if God does exist and they die and they go to be judged, if they're going to gaslight him in order to get into heaven. And it makes me chuckle. And, and a lot of people, you know, they, they made response videos talking about how they would gaslight God. But I think if we simply break down the way these commandments and the way judgment and everything is, is supposed to happen, I think it's very clear that we can make an argument that this was unfair and that we need a retest. <laughs> we need to be able to retake the test if we fail it. And a loving God would allow people to retake the test if they fail it because he wouldn't want anyone to fail the test. Yeah, I know what I'm proposing is like a universalist form of, of theology. I don't think that you can say God is all loving and not come to these universalist concepts. If you did some thinking yourself last week and some thinking about it this week, and as you've been listening today, shoot me a comment. What would a better standardized test for this plan of salvation look like? What could it look like? 
but don't take out the diversity because that's the most beautiful part. Maybe take out the privilege and uh, racism, sexism, that sort of thing. Step into the shoes of God and think for a minute. If you were going to create a plan to test people, to help them become good, what would it look like in practice? I don't talk about these subjects to convince someone to leave the church or to convince someone to stay. I simply want to encourage a discussion to think about them deeply, to think about them in a way to make sure that what they believe is what they think they believe. If you disagree with anything I've said in this episode, reach out, let me know. Let's start a conversation. Next week, well, maybe not next week. I don't know. I said at the outset, I've got some things kind of on the back burner that'll come out pretty quick here. Um, when I come back to a solo episode, I'm going to discuss the plan of salvation one last time, at least for now, <laughs> one last time. And we're going to look at it through the lens of determinism. Now, if you missed the episode a couple back where I chatted with Bill Real, determinism is the idea that we do not have free will and we do not make choices, not in a way where we can be held accountable for them. And so we'll discuss that aspect. And if that is true for the reality that we live in, what does that mean about the plan of salvation? So look for that one down the road. It'll be a fun one. All right, I'm going to switch gears real quick and chat about my first impressions of Under the Banner of Heaven. So first off, cinematography is beautiful. Uh, to demonstrate a faith crisis, they're using some really cool cinematography to make it feel really jarring. So anytime Andrew Garfield's character, Jeb, is experiencing those sort of emotions that you would have during a faith crisis, they use some really sharp cuts and they change the camera angles to almost to like uncomfortably close and then really far away. And then they also, like in those moments, they, they cut between time periods and stories to kind of show the connections he's making between what he's thinking about and the, the murder investigation. And it's a really cool way. Like they don't, they don't show any really long clips. It's really short and disjointed and it's meant to feel really jarring. So they've done a really cool cinematography thing here to visually show what it might feel like to go through a faith crisis. It's, it's got kind of a slow tempo to it. I like it. I like the, the slow burn feel to this, this style of storytelling, and it does a really good job. There are things that I could probably be nitpicky about. Some of the vernacular kind of feels forced, um, but they kind of have a tough job as the writers and, and actors in this. They're trying to cater both to the world at large, but also to our small niche group of Mormons and post-Mormons. So while they do say a lot of things that that you might hear, it doesn't always feel 100% natural. I think because as the writers, they have to kind of balance this feeling of authenticity with the ability for the world at large to understand what's being said and talked about. In a few instances, for example, when they're talking about 
BYU and some students not following the honor code kind of feels a little clunky. Like people might not talk like that, but they kind of have to change some things in order for the world at large to understand what is meant by some of the colloquialisms and terms that we use in our group. Because if we just used the way that we speak naturally, I don't know that the world at large would understand everything, would understand the meaning of some of the things that uh, we as as uh, members and post members say. Now, this again is a small complaint, not really big. When they show a lot of people praying, everyone is folding their, is clasping their hands together instead of folding their arms. Not really like a big deal, but I think it's, it's more common to have a mix of both than to have everybody praying the same way. On the other hand, I will say this. They're trying to portray the Lafferty family as this splinter group off of mainstream Mormonism. And if their intention with everybody folding their hands that way or clasping their hands that way in prayer is to make them feel strange, then I think it worked. There wasn't really a scene to com- to contrast it with of just mainstream Mormons folding their arms in a wide variety of ways. So while, yeah, it did feel a little weird, that might have been their intention with some of those scenes where they were praying. I think it's much more common for people to just fold their arms and have the occasional person clasping their hands together. Those are just nitpicky things. As far as acting goes, Andrew Garfield is doing an amazing job. And so, I mean, it's honestly, this cast is packed. You've got Sam Worthington playing Ron Lafferty. You've got Wyatt Russell playing Dan Lafferty. Sam Worthington from like Avatar and Wyatt Russell from the recent uh, Captain America Winter Soldier. All three just playing, (laughs) just doing such a great job in their parts. And then Daisy Edgar Jones is playing Brenda, the woman that was murdered. She is just doing an amazing job. I really like the way that they're portraying her as very normal and almost um, progressive, at least in the time period where she's trying to pursue a career and all of the men around her are looking at her very strangely for this. Excellent acting from everybody that I've seen so far. I'm excited to see where they go with this. I think it's a really compelling story. But what I want to hit on a little bit before I finish this this uh, brief um, first impressions is while we do watch this, you know, this is about our niche group. We do watch this with um, maybe a little bit more understanding of the nuance and we feel like they're catering just to us. As we're looking at this, we should zoom out and look at it from a bigger picture. And I think there's a wider discussion to be had than just within uh, the Mormon faith tradition and all of the splinter groups off of Mormon, off of uh, the original uh, church that Joseph Smith established. And the discussion that I think is, is something that should be had from both theists and atheists is this connection between violence and religion and this religious, religiously motivated violence and how scriptures can be twisted and interpreted in ways that are harmful to society. And that's not unique to Mormonism. 
this book came out right around the time of the um, 9-11 attacks. It feels like an important aspect of this book is examining this relationship between hyper-religiosity and terrorism or extreme violence. So as you're going through the series, think about it, yes, in our niche group, but then also consider this relationship on a broad scale around the globe. Anyway, those are my those are my first impressions, first thoughts on it. I might do an episode once the whole series is over on my thoughts about the whole thing. I think that might be fun for me at least. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening today. Sometimes I feel like I get a little bit rambly and and I felt like today was a was one of those episodes, but wherever you find yourself out there at the park playing with your kids, riding your bike. I hope that you have an excellent day.